If you were paying any attention to that brief video, you would understand why I've titled this series of messages on the Beatitudes, Living Right Side Up in an Upside-Down World. I want you to hear all of it this morning, the Beatitudes, and then a few verses even beyond them from Matthew chapter 5 as we begin our study. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the light of the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One thing that seems to be diminishing in our world today is happiness. You can see it almost everywhere. In the mall, when it's open. In the courtroom, when it's in session at the gas station, in the classroom, when schools are meeting, in the streets, and even in the pews when people can come to worship. There just aren't as many smiles as there used to be. People are angry. People are sad. People are frustrated. People are worried. People are selfish, 
People are unhappy today. And this summer, I want to talk with you about happiness. But a, a very special kind of happiness. The happiness I'm talking about is the happiness of people who are poor in spirit. People who mourn. People who are meek. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who are merciful. People who are pure in heart. People who are peacemakers. People who are persecuted. Vernon Grounds took all the Beatitudes, eight of them, and he described each with just two words. And those two words seem to be paradoxes. Listen, the Beatitudes are about wealthy paupers, happy mourners, unaggressive conquerors, hungry saints, self-enriching benefactors, realistic visionaries, militant pacifists, and winning losers. Which certainly makes it seem to me that everything around me is upside down. Either the world is upside down or Christians are. So sermons this summer on a sermon, a sermon we have always called the Sermon on the Mount, and just really the beginning part of that sermon, a portion we've called the Beatitudes. Literally the blessednesses, or if you will, the happinesses. But frankly, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that seems to say the more miserable you are, the happier you're supposed to be. And that just doesn't seem to ring true. It was Hannah Whitehall Smith who wrote The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life and in it reported that someone came to her once and said, you Christians seem to have a religion that makes you miserable. You're like a man with a headache. He does not want to get rid of his head, but it hurts him to keep it. You cannot expect outsiders to seek very earnestly for anything so uncomfortable. Is that what Christianity is? A, a bad headache you don't want to keep, but you can't afford to lose your head. Or is authentic Christianity something so utterly countercultural that it defies expectation, it defies explanation, it transforms people from the inside out with a happiness that sets them upright, right side up in an upside down world? R. Kent Hughes put it succinctly when he wrote, what evangelical Christianity needs is an exposure to the life-giving logic of the Beatitudes and the blessedness of their fearsome surgery. So to change metaphors just a little, get ready for some pretty fearsome 
surgery this summer. What we're considering today is not actually a part of the Sermon on the Mount, but it constitutes the whole of this sermon that I'm preaching. You can call it the pre-sermon message. It's the opening two verses of Matthew chapter 5, and we miss a lot if we ignore that. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Now, we're going to listen to that line by line. Now, when he saw the crowds, well, of course, Jesus saw the crowds. There were hundreds of people, maybe thousands. There were thousands on some occasions gathered behind him. And it wasn't just a crowd. It was a traveling caravan. They followed him wherever he went, and they didn't even know where that was going to be. They came from all sorts of regions around the end of chapter 4 in Matthew's gospel, lists five different regions, miles and miles and miles away from where they were. A traveling caravan of people in an era when travel was oppressive and dangerous. Now, when he saw the crowds, doesn't mean somebody behind him made a noise and he turned around and happened to notice there were hundreds or thousands of folks following. When he saw the crowd means he deliberately turned around and looked them in the eye. And he saw broken and desperate and sad and hopeless and divided and separated people. People living sort of upside down in an upside down world. He saw people like us. What the opening line tells us is that Jesus turns to look at the folks he speaks to. He's looking at us right now. What we're about to hear was prompted by a vision of the world as seen through the eyes of the Son of Almighty God. Our needs are what inspired the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about living right side up in a world that is upside down. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. I've been there. I saw the place that's supposed to be the place where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. Trust me, I've seen sand dunes on the shores of Lake Michigan that are bigger and higher. This was no mountaintop experience, literally. At best, a big hilltop experience. But he moved to some kind of geographical rise because in Matthew's gospel, at least, whenever Jesus is going to experience something significant or say something important, it happens on a high place. 
The third temptation, when the devil comes to him and says, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything, happens, quote, on a very high mountain. This is important. The transfiguration, when Jesus glows more brightly than anything any of those disciples had ever seen, happens, according to Matthew, up a high mountain. When Jesus prepares to leave and gives the great commission to his disciples then and now, it happens on a mountain. This is like a trumpet fanfare. Da-da-da-da! Pay attention. Something important is about to happen. And don't ignore the fact either that God regularly in the Old Testament, when he wishes to communicate with his people, does so from a mountaintop. And the one mountaintop that this entire transnational crowd behind Jesus following him all over the place, the one mountaintop they all knew was a mountain you know too called Sinai, which pictures Jesus now as a second Moses on top of a mountain, receiving from God his words, serving as the spokesman for God to deliver the word and will of God to the people of God. This is more than a pep talk on a hillside. This is legislation as significant and important and lasting as the legislation written by the finger of God in the tablets of stone he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Sounds natural. But it is the first century Jewish equivalent of saying, when he saw those crowds, when he looked at those crowds, he went up on a high place to say something important is going to happen. And he climbed the steps to the platform. And he stepped behind the pulpit. And he made sure the microphone was on. That's what it means when we read he sat down. The landscape of Palestine is today littered with lots of ruins, but it seems to me having traveled some of those places, more synagogue ruins than anything else. If you've ever seen the front wall of a synagogue that's still standing, you would notice Coming out of the front wall at about knee height, a stone shelf just protruding from the wall. That's where the rabbi sat after he'd read the words from the scroll and when he was prepared to teach. The pulpit in the synagogue was a chair, a shelf that in every single synagogue was called the seat of Moses. 
Thus, writes Thomas Long, Matthew pictures Jesus as an authoritative teacher atop a new Mount Sinai, teaching the new law of the kingdom of heaven. So when he rose to the crest of the hill that day and sat down, he was declaring from the top of that hill, <coughs> pay attention, everybody. This is the word of the Lord. Do I have your attention now? Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. It's a little hard to get the accurate picture of what's going on here from the words I just read, but listen to it carefully now. Same lines from the message. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. You get the picture here? Jesus sees these hordes of people behind him. He climbs up the side of the hill and out of concern for them and many others, he essentially leaves them for a while and goes to the top where he, they can see him but probably not hear him all that well. And he seems to hold a private meeting with his disciples, a word you're familiar with but a word that appears here for the first time in the New Testament. Jesus offers some private tutoring not just to the 12, but to believers. That's to us, I trust. Now do we see Jesus is addressing this interstate throng of people that came from Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem and the Decapolis, which is an array of 10 cities, and the other side of the Jordan, He's addressing them, he's addressing the curious, he's addressing the world by telling his disciples what to say to folks like that. While he appears to be trying to get away from the world, he is in fact preparing believers to go into the world and teach the world and learn themselves what they need to know from God. And what the disciples and the world, the church and the world, need to hear and need to know was described by John Stott this way. The followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here's a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, 
and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. It is life in what I call neither, neither land. Neither in the secular world where we exist, nor in the nominal church where we just kind of vegetate. But in that world, as live, vibrant, active Christians who are learning how to live right side up, in an upside-down world. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. That's the mark of a true disciple. Disciples come. That is hard to picture here in a nearly empty room, but I trust that the disciples who belong to Ivanrest are listening, watching, learning, wanting to come to him, and come saying what Peter would say, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when the disciples come, he tells them how to live in his kingdom. This is a message for all followers about how life is to be lived each and every moment, every single day, always as citizens of the kingdom of God on this earth. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, and you can't tell from what I just read, but there are those eyes again. Luke tells us he looked at his disciples. He fastened those divine eyes on them. And looking at his disciples, he said some things. He raised his head, fastened his eyes on them, opened his mouth, and taught them what life was supposed to be like in the kingdom of God. One commentator compared that to the preamble to the Constitution. Think about this. The preamble to the U.S. Constitution states, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our poster posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That commentator said this introductory statement defines the essence of the nation's vision of itself and expresses the sort of citizenry it hopes to embody. In a similar manner, the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the church of Jesus Christ, and the Beatitudes are its preamble. The Beatitudes proclaim what is, in the light of the kingdom of heaven, unassailably true. They describe the purpose of every holy law, the foundation of every custom, the aim of every practice, 
of this new society, this colony of the kingdom, the church called and instructed by Jesus. And in this sermon, Jesus is looking at and talking to us. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed, 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 blessed. Nine times. Nine times blessed. Happy. Nine times happy. Though just plain happy is a kind of unhappy translation because happy is based on an old Anglo-Saxon word, hap. And hap means chance. Um, hap means whatever happens, whatever transpires, a happenstance. And that is not what Jesus was talking about. And that is not what Jesus was promising. Real happiness is not whimsical and circumstantial and temporary and unpredictable. It is not even a promise for the future because every one of those first eight Beatitudes is in the present tense. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Happiness is now and happiness is certain. And that's why it's translated blessedness or blessed. Blessed is from the old English word bliss. And bliss means spiritual joy. A long time ago, they used to spell blessed with an I, not an E. Blissed or blissed. And the joy that that expressed was described in another old English word, blithe. A, a word that referred to being together and belonging. Uh, in 1746, a person wrote a letter to a friend, apparently, who was now a former friend, and said, I hope that we meet on blither terms. Blithe is to get along, to stand approved, and when it comes to God, it's to get along with God and stand approved by God and have a joy that can be likened to the smile of God on your relationship with him. Or as Max Lucado put it unforgettably in the title of one of his books, the applause of heaven. So while we kingdom citizens see what's going on in the world around us, fighting and separation and division and injustice and poverty and hunger, we also see that God is at work in this world and at work through the likes of us to put what's upside down right side up again. And that brings a joy, a present and a deep and abiding happiness that nothing can destroy. We not only meet, but we live in blither terms. John Stott, who's written multiple Christian books and who many Christians are very familiar with, wrote about the Sermon on the Mount and Leo Tolstoy, of all things. 
He said Leo Tolstoy knew himself to be an abysmal failure, but he retained a belief that the precepts of Jesus could be practiced and put his conviction onto the lips of Prince Nekliudov, the hero of his last great novel, Resurrection, published in 1900. At the end of the novel, Nekliudov reread the Gospel of Matthew. <coughs> he saw in the Sermon on the Mount not beautiful abstract thoughts presenting for the most part exaggerated and impossible demands, but simple, clear, practical commandments, which if obeyed, and this was quite feasible, would establish a completely new human order in society, in which the violence that filled Nekliudov with such indignation would not only cease of itself, but the greatest blessing man can hope for, the kingdom of heaven on earth, would be reached. Nekliudov sat staring at the light of the lamp that burned low, and his heart stopped beating. Recalling all the monstrous confusion of the life we lead, he pictured to himself what this life might be like if people were taught to obey these commands. And his soul was swept by an ecstasy such as he had not felt for many a day. <clears throat> it was as though after long pining and suffering, he had suddenly found peace and liberation. He didn't sleep that night. And as happens to vast numbers who read the Gospels, he understood for the first time the full meaning of the words read and passed over innumerable times in the past. Like a sponge soaking up water, he drank in all the vital, important, and joyous news <coughs> which the book revealed to him. And everything he read seemed familiar to him, confirming and making real what he had long known, but had never fully understood, nor really believed, but now he understood and believed. That night, an entirely new life began for Nekliudov, not so much because he had entered into new conditions of life, but because everything that happened to him from that time on was endowed with an entirely different meaning for him. How this new chapter of his life would end the future will show, and the future must show the same for us. Let's pray. Lord God, you spoke to us this morning simply through the arrangements that were made for the sermon to begin. You showed us your heart and your love and your search for your people, and your will for us all, and your will for us to hear you. Mold us and shape us, and give us a frame of mind and heart that brings us back again and again to hear more of your word for our lives, and to receive more of your spirit to be obedient to it, and so to come closer to you and draw others along with us. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And now receive God's blessing. Go in peace. And may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in all places. The Lord be with you all. Amen.